So this is uh, by Joni Erickson Tata. It says, on your back with you. One raises a mallet to sink in the spike. But the soldier's heart muscle must continue pumping as he readies the prisoner's wrist. Someone must sustain the soldier's life minute by minute, for no man has that power on his own. Who supplies breath to the lungs? Who gives energy to the cells? Who holds the molecules together? Only by the sun do all things hold together. The victim wills that this soldier lives on. He grants the warrior's continued existence and the man swings. As the man swings, the son recalls how he and the father first designed the medial nerve of the human forearm. The sensations that it would be capable of. The design proves flawless. The nerves perform exquisitely. Up you go! They lift the cross. God is on display in his underwear, or maybe even naked, and can scarcely breathe. But these pains are a mere warm-up to his other growing dread. He begins to feel a foreign sensation. Somewhere during this day of unearth an unearthly foul odor begins to waft, not around his nose, but his heart. He feels dirty. Human wickedness starts to crawl upon his spotless being. The living excrement of our souls. The apple of his father's eye turns brown with rot. His father, his father must not face him like this. He must not face his father like this. From heaven, the father now rouses himself like a lion disturbed, shakes his mane and roars against the shriveling remnant of a man hanging on a cross. Never has the son seen the father look at him so. Never felt the least of his hot breath. But the roar shakes the unseen world and darkens the visible sky. The sun does not recognize those eyes. Son of man, why have you behaved so? You have cheated. You have lusted. You have stolen. You have gossiped, murdered, envied, hated, and lied. You have cursed, robbed, overspent, overeaten, fornicated, disobeyed, embezzled, 
and blasphemed. Oh, the duties you have shirked, the children you have abandoned. Who has ever so ignored the poor, so played the coward, so belittled my name? You have ever held your, have you ever held your razor tongue? What a self-righteous, pitiful drunk. You, who molest young boys, peddle killer drugs, travel in cliques, and mock your parents. Who, get, who gave you the boldness to foment revolutions, torture animals, and worship demons? Does the list ever end? Splitting families, raping virgins, acting smugly, playing a pimp, buying pornography, accepting bribes. You have burned down buildings, perfected terrorist tactics, founded false religions, and traded in slaves, relishing each morsel and bragging about it all. I hate no, I loathe these things in you. Disgust for everything about you consumes me. Can you not feel my wrath? I can hear what you're all saying in your minds, maybe even out loud. The Son of God was innocent of every single one of these charges. He is blamelessness itself. Doesn't God know? Doesn't his father know? Yes, his father knows. But this divine pair, this father and son, have an agreement. And the unthinkable must now take place. Jesus will be treated as if he was personally responsible for every sin ever committed. The father watches his heart's treasure, the mirror of himself, sinks drowning into raw, liquid sin. God's stored rage against humankind for every century explodes in a single laser direction. Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? But heaven stops its ears. The sun stares up at the one who cannot, who will not, reach down or reply when he cries out. The Trinity had planned it. The Son had endured it. The Spirit enabled him and strengthened him. And the Father rejected the Son whom he loved. Jesus the God-man from Nazareth perished, and the Father accepted his sacrifice for sin and was satisfied, and the rescue was accomplished.
Is there any limit to God's love? What about his power? Is there any limit to his power? No. What we're looking at today is the cross, and the cross informs us that there is no limit to what God would do to love you. And there is no limit to his power to redeem a lost and guilty sinner. But if there's no limit to his love and his grace and his mercy, there is also no limit to the horror and the terror and the pain and the darkness that he must inflict on a perfectly holy and perfectly innocent Jesus. He is a righteous judge, and he must righteously, perfectly judge all sin upon this innocent man. Not on the guilty rebels who actually did the sins, but on Jesus. Here's a quote from Adam Clark. It says, Reader or listener, one drop of this cup would bear down your soul to endless ruin. And these agonies would annihilate the universe. He suffered alone. For the people, there was none with him because his sufferings were to make an atonement for the sins of the world. And in the work of redemption, he had no helper. You see, what happened on the cross could have easily destroyed the entire universe if it wouldn't have been contained inside the body of Jesus Christ. The amount of wrath, the amount of explosive anger and righteous judgment that God poured out in that moment could have easily annihilated every atom in this entire universe. But it was contained Like a soldier jumping on top of a grenade, it was contained in Jesus' body. So here's the deal. Here is what we need. We need Jesus to be rejected and abandoned and crucified for us. We need this innocent man to be rejected and punishment punished, excuse me, on our behalf. Why? Because we don't want to do, go through that ourselves. We don't want to have to experience God's wrath. And God doesn't want to have to pour out that wrath on us. And so he's provided this loving grace in Jesus Christ. Well, that's all to prepare our hearts for this, the, the text that we're going to look at today, which is Mark chapter 15, verse 33. So let's start right there. It says, Now when the sixth hour had come, they had just crucified him. Remember that. They just nailed him to the cross. He's been on the cross about three hours. And it says, When the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. So from noon till 3 p.m., there was darkness over the whole land. Now, this is very, very interesting, and people have tried to figure out what this could be. Um, We have some historical documents that prove that this happened. 
uh, Phlegon was a Roman historian, and he wrote this in the fourth year of the 202nd Olympiad. That's how they kept track of time in the Roman Empire. There was an extraordinary eclipse of the sun, which we'll find out was actually not an eclipse. At the sixth hour, the day turned into dark night so that the stars in heaven were seen and there was an earthquake. And we know from the other gospels that at the same moment uh, that Jesus died at three, there was an earthquake that accompanied this darkness. And this is especially remarkable and interesting because Passover was always held during a full moon, which means the moon could never make an eclipse because the moon is on the other side of the earth, not between the sun and the earth, but on the other side uh, during at noon, right? Uh, so we know this could not have been a natural lunar eclipse. This was a, a miracle. This was a supernatural event that happened. This could not have been natural. It wasn't an eclipse. It could not have been a volcano. Some people said maybe a volcano you know, erupted on the other side of the world and the ash came over and covered just Israel for just these three hours, um, which would have been miraculous, I'm, I'm sure, but... Uh, there's no evidence to say that. And this was not a mass hallucination. There's no scientific explanation for this. This is the same thing that we've already seen once in the Bible. Can you remember where we've seen this before? And the answer is during the 10 plagues of Egypt, the ninth plague, which we studied a couple years ago when we were in Exodus, the ninth plague was a plague of darkness. And in that, in that uh, situation, God made it dark in the land of Egypt uh, for three days. Here it's for three hours. Uh, but for then it was three days. And it says that it was a darkness that could be felt. What kind of darkness can be felt? Well, it's, it's a supernatural darkness, okay? And it also says that the, there was no darkness in the tents of the Israelites. So the Israelites were just fine. So the darkness knows the difference between, you know, good people and bad people, kind of like the coronavirus, I guess. Anyway, this ninth plague of darkness happened right before the tenth plague. And the tenth plague was the plague uh, where a lamb was sacrificed to cover over the sins of the people. And here we have the darkness happening right before the Lamb of God is being sacrificed. This darkness that we're going to focus on today was a weird, fear-infused darkness. It's a darkness that feels like rejection. It feels like abandonment. And this darkness, I, I think, really has nothing to do with the land of Israel or the people that live there. This darkness has everything to do with what is happening to Jesus. This darkness is because of Jesus. This is what Jesus is going through. This is the darkness of God's judgment. The darkness of God's judgment. This is the dark side of holiness. Are we afraid of the dark? 
Are you afraid of the dark? I think not nearly scared enough. You're not going to like these questions that I'm going to ask you right now. How much does God hate evil? How much does God hate sin? Probably a lot, right? If God is all good and all righteous, then he hates evil to an extent uh, that infinity couldn't even measure, right? If he's perfect, anything that's not perfect, he's going to hate. Now the question is, how much have you sinned? If you're really being honest, how much have you sinned? And so what does that make you? This darkness that we're seeing today is all about God's hatred of evil being poured out on his beloved son. God hates evil. He hates sin so much. But Jesus is being punished spiritually. God is collecting all the evil all the sin and all the law-breaking and everything else. And he is collecting it from every place in history, past, present, and future. And he is gathering it together and he is placing it inside his son. In his very body. So that all of that evil and all of that sin can be destroyed with the fire of God's wrath. God must be the one to destroy it because he is the judge and that is his responsibility to destroy evil. And so he is doing it. Our evil, your sin, and mine. He is doing it in the body of Jesus. We got uh, this idea of contrast, okay? We're going to contrast the darkness of um, this judgment on sin and sin with light. So darkness contrasted with light. In John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. So anytime we look at Jesus dying on the cross, we see two different things that are very, very different. Just like in this picture of uh, Captain Jack Sparrow, one of, one of the pictures has a lot of light and a lot of dark, that first one right there. And then the second one the, there's not as much contrast. You're only really seeing the light, really. Okay. Now, which one looks better, obviously, is the one where you can see both the light and the dark. When we look at Jesus on the cross, a lot of people are only want to see the good. Oh, he's the light of the world. Isn't he so great? Isn't he so loving? Isn't he so awesome? And those are true statements. But we also need to see the darkness, and that's why we have to contrast these two things today. The darkness of the, the, the um, judgment and the pain and the suffering and the sorrow uh, of the cross, 
and then contrast it with the light of Jesus. And then you can see a better picture of who Jesus is. And so our verse said, you know, John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. But this light of the world is on the cross and is surrounded by darkness at this moment. Why for three hours is Jesus, the light of the world, surrounded by darkness? And I think it's very simple that because God is pouring out all of his wrath, he is extinguishing the light of the world. And there cannot be light around Jesus when he has to suffer the darkness of God's judgment. Jesus has never and will never sin. He is perfect light, yet he's suffering in the dark. The lovely face of God's approval is turned away from him. He is cast away from God's presence. And outside of God's presence, there can be no light. Hell will have no light. Hell will be the definition of darkness. It will have fire, but the fire is not going to produce light. It will have sound and pain, but no light. Which means there's no togetherness. Everybody will be alone and will feel alone just as Jesus is suffering an eternal loneliness during these three hours of darkness. There is no connecting in hell. You're not going to be partying with your friends. You're not going to be talking with your friends. You will talk to nobody. You will be silent in hell. And you will not be able to say a thing except scream in agony. There's no connecting with people. There's no having someone to bear your burdens. Right now, you do. You have a family, you have friends, and you most importantly have a God who would bear all of your burdens and, and give his life for you. But in hell, there is no one to bear your burdens. You will be alone and there will be no relationships forever. And since we were created for relationship, that will be the most horrible terror and greatest pain anyone could experience is knowing that you will never have a relationship again. No one will ever know your name. No one will ever speak your name. And you will be alone for eternity. And no one will be there or hear you. And this is what Jesus loves you so much that he wants to save you from such a terror and such a horror. This is why we preach with passion to this world. This is why we beg and we cry for the world to repent, for our own family and friends to repent and turn to the Lord. Do not believe the lie that hell is not real or hell is not that bad it is far worse than anything you could ever imagine. And Jesus dying on the cross and the darkness of the cross gives us a glimpse into what the realities of hell are. Just being in darkness and isolation will drive someone mad, nearly insane, even in this world. That's why isolation is one of the worst tortures out there. Imagine an eternity where you are hopeless 
that you will ever have another relationship again. And that's the terror of hell. So just how important is light? Maybe I'll lighten it up by telling you a joke. Most, uh, you know, making decisions can lead to, uh, uh, making decisions in the dark can lead to some regrettable consequences. Back in the days before electricity, a tight-fisted old farmer was uh, taking his hired man to task for carrying a lighted lantern when he went to call on his best girl. Why, he exclaimed, when I went a-courting, I never carried one of those things. I always went in the dark. Yes, the hired man said wryly, and look what you got. Ha, 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 ha. All right, continuing on with our text, it says, At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus knew great uh, pain and suffering, both physical and emotional, but in his life, he never knew separation from his father, this loneliness that we're talking about. And and uh, now he knows it. Now he's experiencing it. There was a, a sense in which Jesus felt right now forsaken and abandoned by God. Now, Jesus is a teacher, he's a rabbi, and so what rabbis would do in that day is they would say the beginning of a text that they would want their students to go back and read later to, to get more insight. So the rabbi wouldn't give them the lesson, he would just give them a, you know, go check this out later type hint, because uh, he wants them to dig and find uh, out what the depths of the lesson that he would want to teach them is. And Jesus is maybe doing the same thing here, because Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And this is not the first time that we see this in the Bible. Psalm 22 begins with the exact same words. Jesus is quoting Psalm 22. And so like a good student, what we should do is go back and look at Psalm 22 and find out what Jesus is feeling, what Jesus is experiencing as he is hanging and dying on the cross. And I think it's going to be amazing. It'll blow your mind how Psalm 22 gives us, a, it written thousands of years before Christ, but it gives us an insight to his emotional and spiritual uh, life uh, that was happening as he's hanging on the cross. Just amazing what, what this is. So as we turn in our Bibles to Psalm 22, we're going to read just por- little portions and then we're going, to, we're going to highlight how Jesus was feeling or what Jesus was telling us about what is happening here on the cross. It starts out, a Psalm of David. David wrote this and he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that, of course, sounds very familiar to us. So we're going to find out what Jesus wants us to know about his forsakenness, his suffering that he's going through on the cross during this time of darkness when God has turned his back on him. He says, why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? So Jesus feels alone. Jesus felt abandoned. Jesus felt ignored. This is your Savior hanging on the cross. This is the one who loves you, and he has been through it. He has been through exactly what you are going through maybe right now. So many people say, God, I just feel so alone or abandoned, or if God was real, he would have done this for me or been there for me at that point. 
And Jesus would say, trust me, I know how you feel. I was rejected by God. And what we learn about from the cross is that you will never be rejected as Jesus was. God has no reason to reject you because you have no sin when God looks at you when you've accepted what Jesus has done as your substitute. Jesus continues, or the psalm continues, says, Oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear, and in the night season, and am not silent. So Jesus had a consistent faith in his God. He never fails to trust in his Father. He will not be swayed from his trust or faith relationship that he has with his Father. So no matter what he goes through, he's going to keep trusting in his Father. That's what Jesus is. He says, but you are holy. God is perfect. God always does what's right. I mean, that's what holy means. He is worthy of praise. Even if God does nothing to help Jesus, Jesus is still going to honor his father. And he's not going to get angry and upset, but he's going to know that his father does everything right and perfectly. He says, you are holy. You are enthroned in the praises of Israel. That means God is all about his relationship with his people. He's all about his relationship with his son, the prince, the king of Israel. And he is all about his relationship with you. It's really all he cares about. God is enthroned in the praises of Israel, meaning he cares deeply about you. And he, he really doesn't have anything else on his table. There's nothing else on his plate. There's nothing else he's worried about or focused on. He loves his relationship with his people. He lives for this relationship, and that's what we see here. Our fathers trusted in you. They trusted, and you delivered them. They cried out to you and were delivered. They trusted in you and were not ashamed. So Jesus has seen through the word of God that those who put their trust in the Lord will never be put to shame. Jesus is the ultimate example himself of trusting in the Lord. But all these other examples that he is thinking about and remembering were just foreshadows of his trust. Every story in the Old Testament that shows someone trusting in God was a foreshadow of how much Jesus would trust in his God and his Father. But look at what Jesus says here. He, he brings the focus, he brings our focus back to what he is going through. And he says, but I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. So Jesus feels like a worm. But, and we could understand that just feeling low and feeling worthless and 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 despised, but that's not all that he's referencing and talking about. He's talking about the tola. This is a very specific worm that in Hebrew is called a tola, and Jesus calls it a tola, and it lived in Israel. By the way, what do you call it when worms take over the world? Global worming. Again, this Hebrew word tola is very interesting because the, the, the word tola can either mean worm or scarlet or red. Because back in the Bible days, when someone needed 
a, uh, a, a cloth or something dyed red. They had to find one of these worms and they had to crush it. And what would come out of it would be a red dye or scarlet dye. Henry Morris explains it like this. When the female of the scarlet worm species, the Tola, was ready to give birth to her young, she would attach her body to the trunk of a tree. Here, watch this. I even got pictures of it for you. She would attach her young to or her body to um, the trunk of the tree, fixing herself so firmly and permanently that she would never leave again. The eggs deposited beneath her body would thus be protected until the larvae were hatched and able to enter their own life cycle. As the mother died, the crimson fluid stained her body and the surrounding wood. So the wood would actually turn red. From the dead bodies of such female scarlet worms, the commercial scarlet dyes of antiquity were extracted. What a picture this gives of Christ, dying on the tree, shedding his precious blood that he might bring many sons to glory. He died for us that we might live through him. Then it says, after three days, the bloodstains on the tree would turn a flaky white and fall to the ground like snow. And you can see these, these uh, images of the worm and the red spot on the tree and even the flaky white substance there. Back in Psalm 22, Jesus says, I am a worm and no man. And then he says, all who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. They shake their head saying, he trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Well, we read last week that Jesus experienced this exact mocking. This challenging of his faith and challenging of his faith in his father. They are misunderstanding his plan and his purpose. And and just like Jesus, you know, I, I think there's maybe nothing I hate more in this world than being misunderstood. And Jesus definitely experienced being misunderstood. He says, but you are he who took me out of the womb. You made me trust while on my mother's breast and I was cast upon you from my birth. From my mother's womb, you have been my God. Jesus doesn't focus on what the people are doing to him and all that he's going through. Jesus is focused on his father, not on the problems, not on the people, not on the pain, but he's remembering the love and the faithfulness of his God. And that's also what we should do when we're going through difficult times. Remember how God has walked with you and he's never going to abandon you and he never has. Jesus says, be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. If Jesus asks for something, look at what he asks for. It's the presence of his Father. That's what he values most, his relationship with his Father. And that's what he can't have during these three hours today, his relationship with his Father. And that is hell for him. But he still wants it. He doesn't, he doesn't say, fine, I don't want to be with you anymore. He still wants the relationship. This shows what he really wanted most. And this is so powerful. He still, even though he must endure his father's wrath, he still wants his father's love more than anything. It's more valuable to him. But he will obey his father, even if it means he must be rejected by his father. 
Now look at this verse. It says, many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They gape at me with their mouths like a raging and a roaring lion. And we could study this deeply, but let me just briefly say Bashan was a dark spiritual place, a place in hell even possibly, but it's a place that was a home of demons. And what he's talking about here, what Jesus is referencing, is the demonic hordes surrounding him and mocking him and opening their mouths and yelling at him in the spiritual world, thinking that they have victory over the Son of God. These are like the hordes of Mordor in the spiritual realm rejoicing in the suffering of Jesus. And Jesus says, I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. Jesus has nothing left. And he says here, every single bone is is out of joint or disjointed and, and is in terrible pain. Every ligament is overstretched. Every single part of his body is in excruciating pain. He says, my heart is like wax. It has melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death. Jesus says, I have nothing left. He is at the end of strength. He is thirsty. He feels his need deeply, yet he trusts in the Lord. He brings his needs only to the Lord. He's not asking men for anything. He's not asking for a way out. He is trusting completely in his God. He says, for dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. And look at this verse. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. If you had any doubt of what this was talking about, it should be gone now. All of this was prophesied. Crucifixion was prophesied. This was written before crucifixion was even invented. This chapter, Psalm 22, this psalm during David's life, was written before Rome even existed. They look at me and stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. This again was fulfilled, the word of God being fulfilled right in front of our eyes. Jesus knew that the rest would be fulfilled also. Everything else, and look at what he says. But you, O Lord, do not be far from me. O my strength, hasten to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the wild oxen. You have answered me. I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. What Jesus is saying here is that he knows this is going to end well. He knows how it's going to end. It's going to end with a miracle. It's going to end with a congregation being created. It's going to end with a bride. He knows his bride is on the way, that this is his path to create his bride. And all this would be accomplished by the power of God. And Jesus trusted in that. It's just amazing. Finishing the chapter, he says, You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him and fear him. All you offspring of Israel, for he has not despised nor abhorred the afflicted, the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him, he heard, My praise shall be of you in the great assembly, and I will pay my vows before those who fear him. The poor shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. 
All the ends of the world shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. Jesus is doing all this so that we can be invited into this beautiful, trusting relationship that he has with his Father. He's inviting us into the same thing, an eternal relationship. He said, let your soul live forever. And this invitation goes out around the whole earth from where Jesus died. And he ends it by saying, For the kingdom is the Lord's, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth shall eat and worship, and all those who go down to the dust shall bow before him. Even he who cannot keep himself alive, a prosperity shall serve him. It will be recounted of the Lord to the next generation. They will come and declare his righteousness to a people that will, who will be born, that he has done this. So how... This is how it's going to go, Jesus says. People are going to get saved. God's family is going to grow. And this is what Jesus is focused on as he is suffering and dying on the cross. He's, he's focused on the fulfillment of his work. He's, he's, he's looking at the end, not the blueprints. He's looking at, at the completion of the house. Jesus is thinking about his family as he dies. His brothers and sisters that are going to believe in him, those who would accept his love. Jesus is thinking about his bride, his beloved. He's thinking about you as he's suffering more than any man has ever suffered. He's thinking about you. And then it says at the ninth hour back in Mark, at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As he utters those words, he, he is thinking the whole Psalm 22 through, and it's going through his heart. He has it memorized. He, he, it's, it's a description of what is going on in his heart. And as he suffers in darkness, he's thinking about you and the ultimate victory that he is going to win for you. Well, it says in Mark, some of those who stood by when they heard this said, look, he's calling for Elijah. And, and someone ran and filled a sponge filled with sour wine and put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink, saying, leave him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come and take him down. And this is just being misunderstood. Jesus was misunderstood in what he said by the people that were around him. This is what happens here. Jesus is demonstrating perfect love and faith in his father, and he's sacrificing his body, and the people around him have no idea what's going on. They're assuming he's calling Elijah because there was an old wives' tale tradition that said Elijah would come and help a Jew if they were ever in trouble and called upon him. But that's not what's happening. They have no clue. And my question for us today is, do you have a clue? Do you have any idea what Jesus is and who he is and what he's done? Do we understand? Jesus hung on the cross and took our punishment. He suffered our hell. He took divine wrath. He, we needed him to do this and he did it. That was our need. He satisfied everything. He paid the price he offered his perfect, valuable life in exchange for our sinfulness. Think about what he has done for you. You will never have to be punished for your sin. You will never have to be rejected and you will never have to be left alone like he was. You will never have to be abandoned. You will never not be 
loved. Jesus has done this for you. He has bought it for you through his precious blood. No matter how bad you've been and no matter how much sin you've committed, Jesus has paid for it all. And I ask each one who hears my voice today to respond to that gospel. That is the gospel. I ask you to confess your sins before God from your heart and to ask for his substitution to be yours. Ask him for it. Say, God, I need what you did, Jesus. I need it for me. And it has to be from the heart. It can't be, oh, I'm doing this just to get out of hell. I'm doing this just because someone told me to. I'm doing it just because my parents or my friends or something like that. No. You're all alone, and God knows your heart. And that question, that, that relationship begins from the heart by saying, God, I'm a sinner, and I need what Jesus did for me. I ask you to say yes to his proposal to you. He is asking you to be his bride, and he is asking to bear your burdens. He's asking to be in a relationship with you. He's asking you to be faithful to him and to love him. For he has loved you first, and he's provided all that you will ever need. So take action today. If you are already his bride and you know that, then take action and follow him. Pursue intimacy with him. Praise your God and give thanks to him daily. And that is what we learn from the three hours of darkness that Jesus uh, experienced for us. God bless you. If you need anything at all, please connect with us, get in touch with us, and we're here to serve you and help you and take care of you. God bless you.